Hello, everybody. Welcome to Studio Stein. And today we have Gernot Grömer. And Gernot Grömer is the director of the Austrian Space Forum. And I would like to welcome Gernot to this uh, podcast. Thank you very much for joining Thanks me. Thanks for having me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really, really uh, excited about this call because, um, well, I was introduced to you by somebody I even don't know on LinkedIn who liked one of my podcasts. And so uh, I got to you. And it was, we had a very first call because I was very excited to know about this uh, work you do in space. You are the director of the Austrian Space uh, Network. Right. Mm -hmm. And what do you do actually? What does, what does that entail? Well, that's, my work basically is focused on what could be said is to be the, the, the biggest journey our culture has ever undertaken, that is a human voyage to Mars. And so my research organization is also, amongst other, focusing on human robotic missions to Mars. So we are planning for something that hadn't happened, hasn't happened before, and is yet to happen in, let's say, the 20 to, 20 to 30 years from now. So we are trying to write the first chapters of what a future of our uh, civilization could look like beyond Earth orbit. And that's a super exciting work, as you can imagine. Um, so that's that's a visionary part about it. Uh, but that also entails, you know, the, the, the acrylic world work of an, of an academic, like writing grant proposals, managing people, managing Martians, so to say, as we call it. Um, it means um, not only pointing out how we're going to do things, but actually inspiring people as well. I just maybe that's, that's a nice opening stating as well that, that uh, when I hold it with the words of the French author Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, uh, the author of uh, Le Petit Prince, uh, mm -hmm. the Little Prince, and he said, if you want to build a ship, do not only tell the people how to put together the piece of wood, but make them long for the ocean. And that's exactly what we do in our organization. And that's a beautiful quote. I often use it in my, my coachings for leaders and to use this, this vision, this mission that, and tell people where they have to go to, to make them dream. It's beautiful. Where did your dream start to go to Mars? Well, uh, I guess the, the, the Mars buck hit me when I was a teenager. Uh, basically, when, you, you know, when you're like 14 years old, you get your first binocular or small telescope. In my case, it was a binocular. And uh, you watch up, not just into the neighbor's window, but also a little bit up to the sky and you realize, oh my God, there, there's, uh, there are patterns, there's beauty, mm -hmm. there is uh, you know, unknown things yet to be discovered. And that's the one thing that hit me. So with the scarce little uh, you know, money I got from my parents, I, I put together little funds to, to, to come up with my own small telescope, uh, which was a ridiculous small little reflector telescope and then I decided when I was 18 uh, I, I need to study that um, as a professional because if you want to play with the big boys and you want to use the big toys um, and even get paid for that then you have to study it. That's, that, that's basically what dragged me to astrophysics so that's where I got my academic mm. background. And what, how did you get involved in, in, into the real space work then? What, what is your experience of traveling, of space traveling? 
Well, um, I, I'm not an astronaut. I'm what we call ourselves our analog astronauts. So in analogy to the future missions yet to happen, mm -hmm. we are training, we are preparing, we are uh, basically trying to find the weaknesses in our workflows and procedures and the materials uh, to, to basically enable a safe voyage to Mars one day. Mm -hmm. um, so we do things that are very close to actually exploration missions, like, you know, things like you know, parabolic flights where you, do, uh, where, where you accumulate um, 30 seconds of pieces of weightlessness for research purposes. So I, in my life, I've accumulated 30 minutes of zero G so far. Well, Zero G stands for weightlessness. Mm -hmm. um, we uh, we get a training that is including how to work in a spacesuit, how to put it on, how to you know how to communicate, how to work together efficiently, um, all the experiment training, and then we take all this training and the hardware we have at the Austrian Space Forum, and then go to Mars-like locations on Earth. Like uh, two years ago, I had the privilege of uh, leading an expedition uh, in the Sultanate of Oman in the Dofar Desert. Um, so far, I've, I've led more than 12 expeditions worldwide. Um, wow. Next year, we're going to go to uh, uh, the Negev Desert in Israel mm -hmm. for our next campaign. Um, so it's, it's basically the cultivated privilege of a sneak preview of tomorrow. Wow. Um, it's, it's, uh, you told us um, it, the dream started already when you were 14 years old. Mm -hmm. Is that something that, that you... Um, that you always had a dream of traveling yourself uh, to Mars, or uh... I think I think every child is a born explorer, and yeah. our educational system is a doing a lot of things to beat it out of the kids' minds. And some of us retain that sense of awe. Some of us are, you know, uh, tending more, let's say, the more social um, activities like you know, studying medicine, becoming a nurse, for instance. Others get stuck in the phase of I want to know what's beyond the horizon. That's what, what hit me, I guess. Uh, who, and so, yeah. who, who were your inspirators or your support? Because I can imagine that some people might have declared you mad to. Right, to absolutely. This. You know, when you're 14 or 16 years old and you declare in public in your, in your classroom, I want to be a researcher, a scientist, you go like, okay, you, you, you're like, you're the nerd. Um, you're the mm. guy who, who is asked for help when there's a physics uh, test to be taken, but otherwise, you're not the one who gets invited to the parties. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is slightly changed by now, hopefully. So I do get invited to the parties once we are across, across the, the COVID madness. But um, mm -hmm. the thing is that you are uh, publicly declaring a life of a monk. Uh, you're focused uh, on your work. You're not supposed to think about the pleasures of life otherwise. Um, you know, this is taken to the extreme to some extent, but it's a, it's a commitment you're taking. Mm -hmm. um, and if you think of all the time you need for finishing your studies, getting a degree, uh, then doing the analog astronaut training, uh, getting a mission assignment, do the training for the mission, and then that, that we're talking about a decade after finishing mm -hmm. high school or so. Um, but that was something to be taken consciously, mm -hmm. uh, I would say. That so, because these are very long-term projects, how do you keep yourself motivated without a clear, well, without, without knowing when the result will ever happen, if yeah. it will even happen. Yeah, I think we're a little bit like the Catholic Church. Time doesn't matter. It's the fact of that it happens. And yeah. so in our case, it means that uh, we, we are very well aware it's a very complex project we're tackling. It's not just expensive, it's dangerous. There are risks involved. Uh, it requires technologies that don't exist yet, so we have to invent them. And so you, you realize it's an incremental preparation 
mammoth effort, so to say. Mm. Uh, so it's like building a pyramid, it's building like, like building a cathedral or so. You have to start mm. with a strong fundament. And so what we're doing is we are also rewarding ourselves uh, by, you know, incrementally when we say, well, now we have, we've checked that particular part, we have checked that particular workflow, for instance. And, and ultimately, I think the, the, the strongest motivator is that we have a very clear vision of what the end point of this endeavor is, and that's the first humans on Mars. So I think as long as you're able to imagine, and you know, Hollywood, Hollywood is giving us beautiful examples of how yeah. it could happen or should not happen or whatever, um, is that you have that vision of a human in a spacesuit stepping out of the spacecraft for the first time, putting their footprints on the, uh, into the sand, um, and, and maybe not planting a flag, but stating we are here. Um, mm -hmm. And that's just this, this mere vision of uh, you're looking one day, like in 20, 30 years up to the, the night sky, and you see a little reddish dot star-like object in the sky called Mars. Um, it's that very moment that you realize, oh my gosh, how many things did have to go right? How many rivers did we have to cross and mountains to climb that we can say, standing on the earth, looking at Mars and saying, there's humans out there. We are there as a species. Mm -hmm. That sounds like living through a science fiction movie on the one hand, but you ultimately realize this is something for the history books. And mm -hmm. so it is to some extent also an immortalization of your work as well. Is that what are the key elements to to that? Is that a strong belief, a firm belief, a focus, or what do you consider as the elements of really getting there? I think the the the, the very delicate balance you have to strike is that you have the vision on the one end of the spectrum mm -hmm. of the humans stepping down the ladder into the, 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 the Martian sand. But on the other end of the spectrum, making sure, yes, we need to define what type of metal screw are we using for that particular part. Mm -hmm. And so sequencing a vision into palpable steps, doable, accomplishable uh, little steps one by one, create that very ladder that take us literally from, from Earth to Mars. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, the talent you have to, to, to cultivate is that you're able to break down a, an, an unthinkably complex task into doable steps that are done in real life with real people, real risks, real money, real legal background and so on to finally make it happen. Mm -hmm. So I think there is a lot of dreamers out there and, and we absolutely need them to create the vision, all the artists mm -hmm. that tell us what it could look like, what it could feel like in a way. We have also the, the bureaucrats, which we also need you know, to make it happen and pay the bills or so. But there need to be people who are in between those worlds and yeah. who are actually converting the vision and the bureaucracy into something that is implementable. And that's us. Is that like, like they say, cutting up the elephant or slicing up the elephant into smaller pieces to get it into a yeah. box? In any way you could say so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, except we don't know what the elephant is now. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It's you know that that's that's the next challenge is that there are a lot of unknowns and there is still yeah. nobody done this before, and and almost every mission scenario and plan you look at the first glance looks great and doable, but the devil is always in the details. So mm -hmm. the, the the things I'm not so much afraid about is you know is is uh, the, the the green skinned aliens where we have to go into bare fist fights once we land on Mars. I'm much more afraid of that little you know 
underestimated uh, water filter that gets clogged after 27 mission days and we don't realize it and some suddenly realize after two more months that we're poisoning our own water and we're all gonna die. And so it's a little things that, and that's something you learn during those missions, it's the little things that hit you most, the ones that are not expected of. And, and then of course is the scientific reasoning behind you saying, well, where are we going? And that will be, for instance, the question of do we, you know, can we find life on Mars? Can we find biomarker molecules will tell us unambiguously we are not alone in the universe and Mars is the one location which might give us the answer. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's the, literally the search for the needle in the haystack where you don't know what the needle looks like or if it exists at all. Yeah. Good luck on that. <laughs> Indeed. Well, we're not at the end of the conversation yet because I really want to wish you luck. But, you know, what kind of people, you know, you're building these missions with 200, 300 people from all over the world. Mm-hmm. How, do you, how do you select or to pick those people? What kind of people do you need to, to organize all this? Because it must be, well, not everybody's cut out for this, no? Right. You need a people mindset that is very peculiar. Uh, first of all, they have to be good at what they're doing technically, be it a programmer, be it a material science, be it a medical researcher, be it an analog astronaut, and so on. Uh, and they come from all walks of life. You wouldn't believe where those competence, competent people are sitting. Uh, you know, you need lawyers, you need finance people, you need graphics artists, uh, you, you need, you know, the people who put together the nuts and bolts of a spacesuit. Um, and they're all unified under this common joint vision of going to Mars. So it doesn't matter which nationality they have. Like for the, the Oman mission, for instance, we had 200 people from 25 nations participating. And okay. just the cultural challenges of working with somebody from India, Europe, South Africa, New Zealand, uh, and really these are all com- you know, countries we actually work with, Brazil. Uh, um, that that also is is a challenge in itself. You need to manage those Martians as well. Um, but but it's it's much easier if everybody understands we are we're, we have the same joint. We're pulling on the same rope here. That's one thing. The other thing is that you you have on the one hand procedures that are given by the outside world in terms of how you do your your, your tax declaration as an organization. As that that's a given. That's nothing you can negotiate there. But for most of the things we're doing, we are entering new terrain. We are literally stepping into terra incognita, uh, the wide parts of the map. And um, so we need to create a working culture. We need to create procedures. And we, oh my God, we've done so many things in the wrong way. But I think the important thing is that you accept failure as part of your evolution process Mm. and say, well, I am, to be honest, I'm, I'm thankful for every mistake we make here on Earth when we design a spacesuit, because once we make it a failure here, we do not expect it to happen on Mars because we had the problem already. In our field, in the spaceflight field, we hate surprises. Uh, we are trying to be as, in an as controlled environment as possible. And there are enough things we cannot control anyway, you know? like wind gusts for doing the landing of the spacecraft, for instance. But the things we can control, we do control. And that means uh, that we have the mantra of fail fast, fail cheap, and that gives you a steep learning curve. Oh. I'm, I'm, I'm triggered by, by the fact that you said we, we have uh, people from 25 nations, all, uh, all these different cultures. Uh, I've been working all over the world as well in Afghanistan, Indonesia, South America. Uh, 
and this cultural, this cultural biases or these cultural patterns that people have, there's often so much impregnated and very difficult to overcome that. So I wonder, how do you do that as an organization to overcome these cultural limits or barriers? And are you trying to create a new culture? And if you are so, what is a new culture, the Mars culture? Well, first of all, yes, they do. All, everybody comes with their own culture. Uh, and that's deeply ingrained and you cannot, you know, and you should not really beat it out of them because that brings also color and flavor into their work and culture. So you're, everybody's entitled to their specific cultural needs and they communicate this. And when we introduce each other uh, to each other, then uh, we talk about that until you enter the door to the mission control center, mission support center, or the field. Because once you are on Mars, those borders and differences don't mean a lot anymore. Huh? Mm. That means we have to create our own working culture, like the, the amount of, let's say, you know, handshake quality, adherence to protocols, uh, following rules or so. That's something where different cultures across the world have a different approach. And we say, listen, this is something new because once you're on Mars, your few things that are our daily lives become very precious, like fresh air, clean water or so, which might be more abundant on Earth, but on Mars, they're really more worth than gold. Money doesn't count on Mars. It doesn't make sense to have money on Mars, obviously. Yeah? And so our cultures are ingrained in our values, and the values are ingrained in the resource and how we use them. So if you change resource uh, scarcity, your values change and your culture evolves as well. And so that allows you to do a reset in the cultural valuation. Mm. And that's something we have to be very conscious. We have cultural trainers as well. So like our analog astronauts, they are, most of our leadership people also undergo cultural sensitivity training um, to be aware of that. But we expect everybody to follow procedures just like an airline pilot does when they start, start up an airplane. Mm. So... Considering that, what, what, do you, what do you consider as the most important assets that people need to have without, uh, of course, they have to be, like you said, technically qualified for what they are supposed to do, but apart from human assets? Right. I think one of the most important assets is a minimum level of mindfulness and the ability to recognize everybody else's feel is important as well, mm. especially if you're good in what you're doing. Um, especially in the technical fields that's a very common trait is that you overestimate the importance of your own work and your own, uh, you know, your own field and say, yes, mm -hmm. it's true. If you don't have the software, you cannot go to Mars. Yes. But it also applies to the fuel and the rocket engines. Yeah. And so I think you have to embed that appreciation in the training in the beginning stating, yes, um, we have a hierarchy which is given by the organization. And yes, the analog astronauts are in the spotlight of the cameras, but we're all the team, like, uh, like a big pyramid. If you take away the, the bottom rocks, the thing will topple over. Mm -hmm. And the same thing applies to us as well. So if you do a ground support activity and you are the ones who are and, you know, cleaning the rubbish bins and the mission support center, your job is important as well. Huh? Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and that's appreciated, but you have to train for that. It's nothing that comes naturally, especially if you have different types of cultures. Mm. Um, and so it took us, I mean, it, it sounds so obvious and like a no brainer, but it took us more mm. than a decade to really, you know, inhale that. Mm -hmm. 
is that it sounds to me a little bit like um, everybody has to be a Buddhist, a small Buddha inside. Surprisingly, <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Uh, we have a number of people on leadership who, who say, yes, they, they are embracing Buddhist qualities. Yeah. yeah. And I think um, uh, the, the ability to not say anything at the right moment is a very important quality. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, uh, you know, one of, the, um, one of the worst things you can hear in an organization is, oh, my, my, my dear friend, you just missed an opportunity to not say anything. <laughs> that's, that's, is that, um... Are people trained for that to, to learn to learn this mindfulness and to this have this peaceful mindset? It's, it's, yeah, it's... There, there are three columns. There, there are three pillars to this. One is you can uh, formulate this into procedural ways, like you can codify a few things. Like when we do when we do radio language training, that's highly choreographed, for instance, like an mm -hmm. air traffic controller language, for instance. Uh, then there is the training part uh, where you discuss this in the, under controlled conditions with a cultural trainer. The most important third column is that you live it yeah? and you reflect on it. Uh, and it's just like when you enter a new company, you also take some time to live and breathe the culture of the new company, be it for the good or for the bad. And the same applies here as well. Uh, the, the challenging part, I think, is that we are not in one place, but we are a highly distributed team, not just technically from the fields people are working with, but also geographically. Uh, you know, and during the missions themselves, you have one team on Mars under quotation marks versus mm -hmm. the uh, mission support center on Earth. So you all have to stand, understand those missions work on two planets at the same time. And without a mission support center, a field crew would be lost within a few hours or days and the other way around. So we, it, it's a, it's an unusually high level of, uh, of mutual dependency mm. as well. Mm -hmm. That's, that sounds a little bit scary at the same time as well, you know, to, 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 that your life depends upon somebody, yeah. although you trust him and you know yes. him, who yes. is millions, billions of uh, miles away from you. Yeah, yeah. and you, you have to train that trust as well. So the ones who are communicating between Earth and Mars, they have been training together. So you can tell by the tone of the voice of somebody else if they are concerned or not. Uh, or... And again, some codification helps as well here. And we have psychologists looking into the communication and uh, looking into the I versus them effect that, that you know, you don't appreciate each other's work, for instance. Uh, but also um, that, um, I should rephrase this, that, that um, you, you are aware that you are deliberately sending people into harm's way uh, because mm -hmm. it would be much safer to stay on Earth and not go to Mars for the crew. And we, we did have people in our early years where we didn't understand that uh, responsibility properly. And we had people who were literally quitting because they couldn't take this type of responsibility that when they send them out into the field, that they put them in harm's way. That's, um, yeah, how would I say, it is a hell of a responsibility for people. Yep. Like you say. Yep. Both during emissions, but also when you build hardware, like yeah. uh, when you're an engineer and you 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 create a spacesuit, you know it's like a spacecraft where it's a living machine, so to say, that lets another being breathe and and stay warm and uh, in touch with communication and so on. It means if you 
if you fail and you, worst case, you produce a failure you're not even aware of, uh, you're putting it to people in the harm's way. Mm. We have a lot of mechanisms to avoid those problems yeah, with yeah. the testing and the qualification, of course, but there's still some residual, residual risk we have not thought about. Yeah. And so um, you have to instill that sense of responsibility in our spacesuit design engineers, just like you would into a civil engineer who is building a bridge where people's lives depend on the functionality of the bridge. Mm. Is that... Uh, but for me, it sounds easy to believe that we will to have to believe in a mission that we will succeed to go to Mars. But we will make it look easy. Uh, what would be difficult for me is that uh, you have to accept the complete opposite side as well. That every tiny little bit of um, instruments or what you do, every single second or any single material that you use counts. You cannot afford any mistakes. Absolutely, yes. You, you, you. Just imagine, you have, let's say you have a rocket with one, one million parts. That's a typical number for, for a typical mm -hmm. complex rocket nowadays. And if every component has a reliability of 99.999%, that sounds incredibly reliant, uh, reliable. That's, inc that's incredible engineering. But at one million part, that means that at launch, still a few hundred things will fail. You don't know which ones. huh? even with that incredibly high reliability. And that means that you have to build in redundancies. You have to be able to accept certain types mm -hmm. of failures where you don't know where they are. We have a whole system of evaluating uh, the, the risk on this. Like you have to really be able to point at every nut and bolt, every line of code and ask yourself, what if that particular thing fails? What is mm -hmm. the failure tree deployed after that? And so that, that gives you some, you know, there's a whole, you know, philosophy behind this, and that's not only specific to the spaceflight field, but uh, it's a culture which you have to embed that uh, if you don't properly document a piece of hardware you're building or so, it's the same thing like if you didn't build it. Uh, okay. And you have to really uh, instill that and push this into the brains of our, our designers and, and mission architects and engineers to make sure they understand that, that uh, yes, there are a few rules that you don't need in everyday life on Earth, but are vital for mission success on Mars. Yeah. So it, it, it's, it's like um, making robo robots and um, uh, could I say that you have to change yourself a little bit into a robot? to be able to do this work? Not a robot, I think it would be bad because a robot wouldn't recognize when it's doing a mistake. Let's put it this way, think of a good restaurant where you have a, a, you know, a, a gourmet style cook and he gets a recipe from somebody else to cook. We want a, uh, a cook who thinks when he, when he cooks, huh? although he has a recipe. And the same applies to our engineers as well. We give them recipes for a thinking cook. Yeah. So how, how do you apply the, the human feelings and the human emotions and the intuition? Because the cook also feels into the food, whether, yes. it, will, whether it will taste or, or he has this intuition as well. How do you use that in, in your projects? Is well, there space for it? Yeah, you have, you have to, to embrace that because we're not sending robots, we're sending humans and robots to Mars. Yeah. And humans have feelings, they have fear, they need sleep, uh, they have interpersonal relationships, uh, they have sexuality, uh, they have, you know, they might die. What happens if somebody dies on Mars? We also have to think about that. 
Um, and so that needs to be thought through. So for most of the traditional emotions you have as a humans, we have, uh, you know, ways how to embrace them, how to cope with them. For instance, if you have a, uh, it's called densification, densification, which means too many people on too, too crowded places too, in a too small uh, compartment. Let's see, uh, somebody goes for a, a large ocean sail on a sailing boat and is together with the same six people for half a year or so. Um, you have you can codify a lot of things and tell them, listen, here's your flight plan. This is how your daily routine looks like. And these are the procedures, how you fulfill those particular steps in the daily plan. But we also create spaces that are exclusively for you. That's your, you, otherwise you would just, you know, describe this as free time, as leisure yeah. time. Um, and for that leisure time, we are training our crews, for instance, to identify their, I would call them charging ports for their psyche, which means for everybody, you have different uh, types of, uh, how do you feel about batteries? You, know, you watch a movie, you write a, a diary, you play a, a board game, whatsoever. Mm -hmm. uh, you do, you know, progressive relaxation techniques, uh, yoga, whatever, you name it, yeah? And so part of the training for the field crews is that we go through, you know, uh, the most, the usual suspects when it comes to uh, diffusing and, and, and decelerating uh, um, um, activities. And then they choose what works for them best. And then we plan accordingly. Uh, you know, one very often thing, thing we often see in our characters is, uh, you know, affinity to, to staying fit and healthy. Yeah? So, so if you allow for some fitness time, that's already a good steam valve. Huh? Others are, you know, into writing diaries. Like um, there is a, as a famous American astronaut uh, goes by the name Gary Lininger, uh, who was uh, at the Mir space station back in the Soviet Union time, uh, one of the predecessor projects for the International Space Station ISS. And he would write diary entries for his not yet born son. So his, his wife was pregnant and he was, he was writing diaries to his unborn son. And if you if you read those diaries, and uh, I still get goosebumps when you read them, and then you know the story behind this, the things this this mind goes through when there are in the mirror space station, a hell of a lot of things that went wrong, and and they nearly you know they had real problems back at the, this mission. Uh, then it 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 always almost brings tears to my eyes when I read those diaries, mm -hmm. and that's a perfect symbol as well. It actually got, I think he made a book out of those diary entries. Mm -hmm. It's a great read. Is that? You have to plan to be spontaneous. <laughs> yes, that, that that really brings it down. Uh, it, you have to be able to to do something joyful at the flip of the switch, which is not easy, but you can train for that. Like, uh, you know, in, in the early years when we had our first missions, we even told this, the the crew, "Okay, uh, tonight uh, you have to watch a movie and enjoy it." Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> How do you do that? Enjoy <laughs> something. I, I would freak out if someone told me. Told me. And you know, and the response of the crew had to be, "Yes, sir." <laughs> of course. Okay. <laughs> um, and did you enjoy? Yes, sir. We did enjoy. <laughs> and so we've we've gotten better at that, obviously. Um, and you know, you even in a codified environment where the communication is highly structured, you can still leave room for. When you know the rules very good, you know we can squeeze in something funny, uh, mm -hmm. or you know. But you gotta be very careful because not all types of humors make it across cultural barriers. Um, and you you learn this the hard way when you when you're in a spacesuit and before you go outside on the station, you have to go into an airlock, so where the depressurization happens, and you you basically. Um, 
make the pressure drop to the outside drop to the outside outside atmospheric pressure at typically around 10 50 minutes or so in our most of our simulations and uh, that's a time where I can crack uh, the jokes and uh, because there's nothing else to do and that's a moment when you realize okay here are the culture barriers and you got to be a little bit careful by not you know be too intrusive yeah. in somebody else's mind so what 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 are the biggest failures that that you have uh, encountered encountered so far uh, in in missions um, and successes? Well, you start with the failures first. Yeah. I think uh, on the one hand, there is a lot of you know technical failures or things we learn, like you know making mm -hmm. it not stronger. Uh, that that's that's the easy part. Um, the the not so easy part are the procedural mistakes when you realize, oh my God, we are you know, you you find yourself at uh, that was during my second mission on uh, in Utah, actually the Mars Desert Research Station. At that, I realized, oh my God, I spent now what almost two hours in writing reports. I'm on Mars to write a Word document report. Come on, that's a waste of my time. And so uh, I think uh, the realization how how precious your time as an analog astronaut is is something that you really have to feel viscerally and not just mm -hmm. study on paper as well. And <clears throat> and then there are the challenges to the outside. And this was one of the not failures but challenges we 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 saw was that. Uh, we are not living in a bubble. We are living in the real world. Uh, we need to attract sponsors. <coughs> Sorry. Uh, we need to be sure we do this in a, in a you know a proper legal way and so on and um it it got quite challenging at, at points to convince somebody who has not who is not sharing your passion uh to be participating in this project and and bend things to make it happen like you know a, a costumes guy who says well i don't care if your satellite dish gets stuck in costume for another two weeks uh, I get paid the same, so why should I worry? Yeah, mm. <clears throat> and so you have to find a way how to how do you properly address the challenge of motivating people who are not inside your own system as well mm. to connect to the rest of the world. That's uh, and yeah, it's it's. Um, how how do you do that to because you, you seem to be like a very or you, you come across as a very passionate man um and i'm sure that all your employees or the people that work with you are have the same passion as well because indeed if you're asking for for funds and for you actually ask for a blanco check uh, yeah almost almost yes yes well I think the good thing is we're not doing this for the first time now. So we have a heritage of successes. Huh? Yeah, and yeah. that is easier to show in the media presence, for instance. That's easier to show in the scientific track record. So we, we did a hell of a lot of publications uh, in yeah. peer journals on the way on the work we did. Um, and so we we had to start humble in the beginning uh and still stay humble but 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 humble with a track record let's yeah. put it this way yeah. 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 um and that uh and if you know what the others are because everybody has in their work preferences rules and things why he does the things he does and if you're able to identify the needs of your counterpart, I think that makes things easier. If it's like, let's say, a politician who needs visibility in the scientific field, 
uh, we we can tailor make our our, our proposal to him uh, in a, in, a, in, a, in in the accordingly, and the same applies to let's say you are an engineer from a large company who says, well, I need my super duper new brand new hardware tested on the most unimaginable ways by destroying it under control conditions. And very good at we're good at things crush to be crushed under control conditions and learn from that. Uh, we can offer that. And so if you have a generator that that needs to be tested under harsh conditions, be our guest. You know? So, yeah, no, I would like to go a little bit deeper into the, to the going to Marsen itself. Why do you believe that it is important for humankind to go to Mars? Do we have to go to Mars? And what's the benefit of it? I think exploration is part of the human nature. The very reason why we're not stuck to East Africa uh, since 500,000 years is because somebody there said, oh, what's behind the next horizon? Mm. And it seems from an evolutionary standpoint that it's preferable for any society to have a small fraction of its members to be able to take the bold step and go beyond uh, mm. and discover new you know, hunting grounds whatsoever. So we are migratory by our DNA on, one, on the one mm. hand. Um, I think it is a, you know, it would be very unusual and strange question if I would ask, what's the cost of the United States? Yeah? Mm. Uh, but it surely was the first question uh, Christopher Columbus got when he called, uh, asked uh, Queen, Elis uh, Queen, uh, Queen Isabella of Portugal uh, if he asked for the three ships to go to India uh, and find a new seaway and, and stumble across the United States. And so, um, but I think you have to ask this from the perspective of the future in a way. Mm -hmm. I think we as humans were able to uh, to live in areas that are not made for us. You know, you're not supposed to survive in Scandinavia unless you have thick clothes to, to, to make it through the winters, for instance. That's one thing. But I think there's a migratory instinct behind this. The more immediate benefit, I think, is that there's research questions like the quest for, uh, for life, for instance, if mm -hmm. we're alone. I think for, for me, that's a very strong motivator. Um, the most important thing, I think, is, is very well paraphrased um, by uh, Sir Greg Mallory, the one, the guy who climbed Mount Everest for the first time. Okay. Uh, and uh, he was asked, why, why do people climb a mountain? I mean... <laughs> What do you gain from this? It's risky, it's costly, it takes time, you need training for that, and still people do it. And Mallory said, because it's there. I think that's okay. the most valid and honest answer you can have. And once you're there, then you will realize, oh, there are other benefits benefits well, like you know, the resources there, or the science you could get there, or uh, the technologies developed for Mars, which can benefit also Earth as well. There's so many space technologies we are benefiting every day today. You know, mention GPS, weather prediction, climate projections, uh, telecommunication, and so on as well. This could go on forever. And so you start with because it's there, and you get a huge bucket full of rewards as well. And I think. Uh, to be honest, I think it, in, yeah, in, in, let's say, 20, 30 years when we go from Mars as well, uh, I think it's not unlikely that we have permanent stations on the moon as well. Mm -hmm. And just imagine that, that, that thought of you look up in the night sky, you see the new moon, a little dark, huh? but uh, there are little spots on the moon from the colonies mm -hmm. or the stations there. And you realize, oh, my God, we are out there. Imagine since 20 years. In the inception of the International Space Station, uh, the ISS, 
not all humans have been on Earth at the same time since 20 years. Yeah. See, I, I didn't realize that. It, it, it's, it hits me. That's, uh, I can, I can yeah. a, a second thought. Uh, it blew me now. <laughs> political point of view. Um, there is a uh, quite famous story from um, an American astronaut who spent, um, Scott Kelly, uh, who spent almost a year in, in space uh, together mm -hmm. with, with his Russian counterparts. And when they are at the station, actually, so they're already in the middle of the mission, basically, they talk about their, their time when they were at the military, both of them are military pilots. And then they realize that uh, during the end of the Cold War, uh, you know, like, no, no, we're talking about the 90s already, so much later then. Um, they were both flying fighter jets on each, each side of the Russian system versus the US system, somewhere across uh, Eastern, before the German unification. So they were flying on the Eastern part and the Eastern yeah. Germany and Western Germany, so to say. So if there would have been a crisis, it would have been not unlikely they would shut each other out of the sky. And now those two, you know, extreme resourceful individuals are working together at the space station supporting each other, their lives depending on each other, mm -hmm. and they forge a bond of camaraderie that is unprecedented. How much is that worth to you? That those two fighters are now joined together in the most um, peaceful manner they can imagine. Mm -hmm. that's, that's beautiful. Of course, you, you would have, uh, and, and I have to ask the questions. How do you how do you tackle uh, the people who are opponent to uh, to Mars missions who say yes, but we are we ruining nature with it. Why do we have to be on the moon? We 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 um, uh, well this nice vision of the moon it will not be there anymore. It will be artificial. It's it we destroy the nature. Well, how do you tackle these kinds of uh, remarks? Well, we, we believe that especially the moon is a live barren land. It's like a big, magnificent desolation. Yeah? And I think um, life has always the, the drive to settle in places, new places as well, to expand mm -hmm. as well. So that's just part of the, the as I said, the, the migratory instinct. Yeah. Yeah. We are wanderers since, since our beginnings. Um, and I think if you put life there, by means of a human station or so, you are you're making it bigger. You're making it more interesting. I think you're making it more lively yeah, by the very meaning of the word. Um, and the same applies to Mars as well. So we, we're not aware of any you know, indigenous species we are endangering once we go there. We're very careful about that. So, so we don't that for, know that for sure. So we're very carefully with the first missions until we have established that there is no life there. Maybe there is, we don't know that. Because in, in, in a way, you could say it's a kind of a colonization, and I know it's a very heavy term to use. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's so how people would look at, could look at it. Yeah, I, I would and say... And it has a very negative uh, side effect. It, it has a connotation we, we're not very happy with. Yeah. Um, we, you know, uh, the Roman god of uh, Mars uh, is known to be the god of war because of the red color, blood, and so on. Mm. However, uh, the Roman gods had uh, a very interesting uh, job description which allowed them to, to, to change jobs and their designations. And so uh, Mars, before it was the god of war, was the god of agriculture. And that's okay. a reference we much more appreciate. Yeah? And so uh, what I'm saying is that, um, that 
we are not there to exploit, uh, but we're there to, to settle. I think I, I, I really want to avoid the word colonization because mm -hmm. it has so many connotations in terms yeah, of exactly. also, you know, crushing indigenous uh, civilizations or so, which we don't have on the moon and on Mars, obviously. But still, um, I think we have to deal this very respectfully. I think mm -hmm. we, we do have a model um, which is somewhat comparable, and that's the exploration of the poles of the Earth, Arctica and Antarctica. And we see it's not trivial uh, to, to, to uh, avoid a race for the oil of the Arctic, for instance. Yeah? Um, and uh, the good thing is, you know, Mars is not so close. It's not that easy to get there. It's not easy to fight a colonial war or so in any way. Yes. Um, but we have not to keep this in mind. Yeah, not yet. I think once you have enough people there and they are getting more and more self-sustaining mm -hmm. and more, you know, self-reliant, you don't, you know, absolutely need every supply ship from Earth because you're able to plant your own crops mm -hmm. on Mars one day under controlled conditions. I think as your value system changes because the consumable scarcity, uh, you know, is shifting as well, also a cultural shift and you would realize at one point well we are not earth reliant from a material point of view anymore mm. so what about independence mm. you know we're talking about something in like 100 years from now who knows but mm. but i think it would inevitably happen just like it happened with every single colony on mm. earth as well i like i like the comparison that you made with with uh, exploring uh, the pole the polars and uh, exploiting now people who want to exploit the polars for the for the oil and then it's all about um, the intention that people have behind their voyage you know one go to to explore and to like like you guys I would say you have a good intention but some people and I put it in a very dual way uh, maybe I should not but I'm for the, the interest of the conversation have not these good intentions and might go to Right. Uh, want to go to Mars to find silver or to find gold or whatever, so they can bring it back to as a commodity to to the Earth. And so, how how do, what's your vision about that? The intention of, of of doing exploration. Well, as always, we hope for the best and prepare for the worst. Yeah. And uh, for, if you say that the worst would be the the, the trail of thought uh, concerning uh, exploitation and you know uh, ripping of Mars in a way. It's a philosophical and ethical question which yeah. needs a broad uh, societal uh, debate that is already emerging, I have to say. So there is even a few people who claim the emergence of a new science called uh, astrosociology, okay. uh, in a way. Uh, and it encompasses, you know, many unknown trails of like, you know, what about the first children that are born on Mars? These are the first aliens you can shake hand, hands with, huh, in a way. Huh, there will be. That, that's going to happen. It's inevitably, it will happen. We know biological is possible, so it's going to happen. Um, what about if somebody dies on Mars? What if you uh, think about independence or so? What if you think about, you know, uh, even the, you know, the dark side of interplanetary warfare one day or so? But I think we have to start with the things at hand. Uh, like what if somebody gets sick on Mars? What if you discover life? And uh, how can you make sure that you don't endanger an ecological niche there? Like uh, we have uh, regulations in place worldwide uh, enforced through the United uh, Nations system that uh, we are not spoiling our, our spilling biological markers on Mars in an uncontrolled fashion, that there mm -hmm. are stay out areas, like in a national park, so to say, where you can only go in under very, very controlled conditions, making sure you don't contaminate the very rocks that you're trying to investigate for the yeah. trace of life. 
And so we'll gather incrementally. And I think the important thing is that we keep the dialogue open to the public as well, because mm -hmm. it should not be only astronauts who are making those decisions. Mm -hmm. It should not be program managers only or politicians. Mm -hmm. It should be on a, on a general basis. And I think the beauty about this is that those discussions force upon you as a society to reflect on your existing choices mm -hmm. as well, like the value of life. Right? And that's a, I think that's a beauty in, in spaceflight in general that uh, it not only opens perspectives of uh, when you go to a new place, what's it like there and how does it feel to stand on the moon or the Mars, but it also opens the opportunity to reflect on yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, there's this, this, uh, this, because it's December now when we're recording here, um, there's this beautiful mission of Apollo 8 when uh, there was a Christmas mission of 1968 before the, the, the first Americans landed on the moon. They, they did a flyby around it. And there's this very, very distinctive picture they took when they were flying around the moon and then saw the earth rising above the horizon. Yeah. This is a very famous picture. And if you, it's a nice experiment every listener can do. I really would like to encourage everybody who's listened to this podcast to do this little experiment. Next time you go out to your hairdresser, you talk to your any friend in a bar or so, yeah, anybody in the street, if you like, ask them if they would have to describe the 20th century by one single picture, what would be their choice? And you will hear two very, very often cited photos. One is the Hiroshima atomic bomb. That's very oh, yeah. about the 20th century. And the second one indeed is the earth rise from Apollo 8. Yeah. The question is, we as humans, what would you prefer to be associated with? Well, for me, the second one, for sure. <laughs> well, yeah, thank you. That's, that's a good reflection. And while we're coming to, uh, to the end of the podcast, uh, Gerno, I, I still have one question for you. When are we going to land on Mars? What's, what's your hope? What's your... Uh, our most reliable projections, and it depends on, you know, policy funding, not the technology, by the way, that's not the showstopper. Um, it's, it's more the question, when does our society feel the urge strong enough to, to make it happen? But I believe uh, that within the next 20 to 30 years, it is realistic. Rather 20 than 30 years, I would say. But that also means that if you say that the astronauts who are doing that voyage uh, and the first woman to step on Mars uh, will be, let's say, 40 years when they do the journey, that means if we travel in 30 years, that particular woman will be now 10 years old, which means what I'm saying is I firmly believe the very first humans to walk on Mars are already born. And are just now, you know, maybe leaving elementary school somewhere in Beijing or New York or um, in whatever city you choose. Huh? And they don't know their career path yet, but they are there already. And we're working for those unknown children. So the Martians are already there. Martians are amongst us. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you very much, Gerno, for this beautiful interview uh, and to see your enthusiasm and your passion. And I hope I, hope I once can see uh, you, or probably not you anymore, but uh, one of your fellow colleagues landing on the moon, on, on Mars, excuse me. Both of them. Oh, we both give of it them. a twist, take both, absolutely. Stane, it's been my we pleasure. Thanks for this. Date. Really, really great questions. I immensely enjoyed it. And... Uh, so if people are interested in the field, just, just Google Mars, Austrian space for us. So we also have international yeah. participants as well. And who knows where this journey might lead us to. 
Maybe it's good that you mentioned the website uh, because if, if they are interested or they want to applicate or whatever, they find Absolutely, all the information yes. there. Yes, we, are, we, are, we have a standing uh, open call for, for students, for instance, doing internships, uh, writing a master thesis at our institution, for instance. Just Google Austrian Space Forum and it's very easy to find an application pages, uh, both for volunteers but also students. Uh, we sometimes all paid for these positions, but that's, that's rather the exception. And as we have, um, you know, um, people from, from many nations participating, the Austrian Space Forum has people from 20 nations. So our official working language is BE, broken English. Uh, okay. and, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll let you taste a little bit of piece of Mars, hopefully. Thank you very much. And I wish you a, a nice voyage to Mars. Absolutely. Stay, thank you very period. much. Have a great day and on Thank tomorrow. you. Bye bye.